On this episode, we begin with Anne's story as she recounts what it was like moving to a small town in high school, where we met, navigating a parent's divorce, an abusive relationship, and making a decision in college that will forever influence how she leads her life and builds community today. When I first met you, I remember meeting you, your, you and your mom had moved to Nelson, and your mom was going to be, what, the principal, superintendent? I don't know which the one. The principal, yeah. And I just remember, like, thinking, like, wow, this independent woman, and you, and I met you probably through, like, my dad being on the school board and your mom, like, let's make a match, and we just really hit it off. When did you move? Like you were a freshman? It was after my freshman year. So between my freshman and sophomore year. Yeah. And it's funny that that's how you saw me because I didn't feel that way. Because <laughs> um, my my parents got separated. And so my mom and I moved to Nelson. My mom was the principal you know, we left my dad and my younger brother were back in Tilden with my dog. Um, mm. And my older brother was already in college, but um, it really was awful. And then we left this like really nice house on the edge of town. Mm. And my mom and I move into this basement apartment with the cinder block walls and like the bathroom that was the size of an airplane. <laughs> and so all that was just so weird to me. Um And I just remember no one ever asked how I was doing or how Mm. I was feeling about all this. Like, I mean, not just people in Nelson, but friends and family. And so I think that that's where, you know, a lot of my empathy comes from and just wanting to show up for people Mm -hmm. because I felt like no one showed up for me Mm. um, during all that time. I'm Tay Moeller, and this is Anatomy of Change, a podcast series about the struggle and connection in making courageous change in the systems and structures that thread our lives. mom was one of the first female principals. I mean, I remember her coming home crying from meetings because she'd be the only woman like at statewide meetings and just the men were very disrespectful. So I remember those times too. You just keep showing up. And so that's why a lot of people didn't know what was going on because we had a really nice facade and it's taken a lot of years to unpack all that and just learn to be vulnerable because we're all messed up. I haven't met a person who doesn't have challenges. And I think sharing those stories matters. I think that the strongest and most confident people also show vulnerability. Like that is strength to me. And that's what I've been learning. You gave a few of my friends a run for their money because you were pretty damn athletic. And after one of our basketball practices, 
you won the starting point card. Mm-hmm. Now we're all older and hopefully wiser. That whole idea of who are you loyal to? Like, how dare someone come in and take my spot that wasn't here before? And I just remember feeling like pulled about who I could be friends with, who I was loyal to. And that made me sad. I also wish I was better back then. Like just all the shit that you have to learn through. It was awful. Cause that's when I got the the letters in my, my, oh. um, in my locker about all the reasons that people didn't like me. And, you know, it was just a rumor mill. And I remember the person that I was competing against for that spot. I was like, let's just play a game of one-on-one and whoever wins can start. We're all in the same team. So it's like, why is there this competition that's trying to tear people down? Mm-hmm. Like we can all just be better. And that was always like, that's why I loved sports. Like I love the team aspect of it. Um, but everybody doesn't see it that way. And they think if someone else gets something, it takes away from them. Mm. And that is what privilege is, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's enough to go around. And I've always thought that like, just cause I'm better at you this time, better than you this time, two weeks, it can be a different story. Like, let's just all go work harder. I definitely got that from my dad. Uh, just good sportsmanship, you know, let's just all work hard and all get better. And just cause I'm better this week doesn't mean that you won't be better next week. Um, But yeah, so I remember that too. One of the girls in my class, she and I, we got along great and we hung out a lot. And um, I, it it all just started with, it was, it was sports and which was crazy to me. Mm. And I was really good in school too, because I ended (laughs) up graduating valedictorian. And so... (laughs) So I, like, I just, I was viewed as this huge challenge to the the system that was mm. there, I think. And so, like, everything was fine. And then, yeah, I show up and do sports. And I like the what you just said about the, I think it was the number two position on basketball. Okay. Like, sorry. I got to start that position because mm-hmm. I, I was good and I practiced all the time. I mean, yeah. when I, in Tilden, you know, I was the little girl out in the, you know, driveway shooting hoops into the night because I just loved basketball. So I thought I deserved it because I worked hard for it and I wasn't trying to hurt anybody else. I'm just competitive with myself. But that, you know, tipped over the apple cart and, I guess made everyone mad. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the same girl who was the first one to come meet me is the one who rounded up the troops and had all the girls write why they didn't like me. And then they would leave the letters in my locker. And it was even people who were my friends. Mm. And so, you know, I think that, the power of the mob. The power of the mob and just like, who can I trust? Um, and I think that that's where I get the, like, you have to show up for people. And I, and I get what you were saying too about like, who do you be loyal to? Like, I like both of these people. 
who should I be loyal to and how that's a challenge. Um, and you know, for me, I mean, this is over the years, but I, you know, you do, you learn from all those experiences and just, I'm loyal to the right thing. Like we're going to do the right thing. You know, nothing was ever the same after that. Um, I just couldn't wait to get out of there. Mm. You know, and and it's hard when your mom's the principal too. There's so many things that happened in that little town. But I'm I'm grateful as an adult for all the lessons because it does help me relate to people in my work now. So so for that, you know, you always have to look for the silver linings and everything. Mm-hmm. Where were you off to? So I was off to University of Nebraska in Lincoln. And so I was dating this guy who I had been dating since I was, I don't know, 16. So for a long time. And so, yeah, I went to college. I was majoring in engineering. And that relationship was really not healthy especially emotionally. And so he was also in college. And I remember, so I had 18 credit hours my freshman year, which is bonkers in engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I was struggling, but a lot of it was my personal life and just doing his homework too and writing his papers, mm. which why I did that, I'll never really understand, but that's what emotional abuse does, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It makes you not believe in yourself. And so all that was going on. And I, um, I, you know, my grades weren't super great. They weren't awful, like C's, but that was hard because I was used to getting all A's. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was for a variety of reasons. And so my, let's see, it would have been my second semester. That's when I got pregnant. So that would have been like, I think the second semester would be like in February, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, so then I had all that going on and I was living with my older brother who's Mm. six years older. Um, So, you know, he knew all the conflicts going on with this guy I was Mm -hmm. dating But I still remember, so, you know, it's Nebraska, right? No one in the 90s was, like, open about being pro-choice or they're either just quiet or right to life. My mom, you know, was always a supporter of Planned Parenthood and um, supporting women. Mm -hmm. And so I was lucky that I could talk to my parents about it, but I knew... I I just knew right away. I'm like, I am going to have an abortion. Like, I can't, like, this is ridiculous. I'm getting beat up. I'm totally emotionally abused. I'm Mm. trying to be in college. I'm like, what am I going to do? And I still remember, because you you had to go get a pregnancy test at Planned Parenthood. So I still remember, I was, I remember what I was wearing. My red wind pants, my red and gray, I think it was... A, a Nebraska sweatshirt with those, you remember those black Adidas shoes mm-hmm. with the white stripes? Mm-hmm. I had those on. And I had a ball cap on from structure, the structure. <laughs> so I'm walking to the Planned Parenthood on 23rd and O. 
I remember that exact spot. Yeah. Green awning. Yep. Yep. And I, so I have to go in there and I have to have, I'm by myself walking. So I have to take this pregnancy test. And of course it comes back positive and like I knew it anyway, but I just totally broke down in the office and the nurse is like, do you have anyone you can call? And I'm like, no, I don't. Because none of my friends, like, they're all these right-to-life people and, like, very vocal about it. And so I had no one to call. And I didn't want to tell my brother because, you know, all the shame around it. And so she just let me hang out there for a while. And, I, God, I still remember that. It was clear as day. Um, so I just hung out there for probably a half hour. And then I walked home. And... Then you had a call to make the appointment at the other clinic. The, the I had to do that. So, so then I call the other location, which was on South Street. Then, what was going through your one? head at that time? Were you numb? Were you just on autopilot, like a warrior? What were you? Do you remember? Yeah, I was like, I just got to get this done. Like, I just want to get this over with. And so. I had it and you know my boyfriend didn't want me to do that and I was like I don't care what you want like this isn't about you this is about me (laughs) and uh, yeah and who are you to talk like you are not nice to me so yeah I just I had to make the phone call and then you have to so I made my appointment and so I was only um so then I went in the next week because they only did Um, the procedures one day a week on Fridays and so I remember um, I took a a test in statistics Mm. I took a test and then um, it like the day before I had to take it early because it was scheduled for that Friday well, then the other challenge is you have to come up with money because you have to pay cash because mm-hmm. insurance doesn't cover it. And that was like one of the most stressful things. And it was like $325. So I don't know if you remember when you were a freshman in college, but most of us didn't have $325 of cash laying around. Right. And your parents didn't so, know at this point. No, they knew. Oh, and they so knew. Okay. my dad had state wrestling. And so I had met him at his hotel and he gave me $100. But I saw it come up with 225 and like I had, I had some cause I was working and so I, you know, I had some of it, but then I was like that morning I was short money. And I remember going to super saver and writing it, buying a pack of gum and writing the check for $20 over. Mm. And like, I did that at like two or three places to get money. Mm-hmm. And then I still didn't have enough. I was like $10 short and I was so stressed out. And my, my boyfriend at the time is, is he went with me because you had to have someone go with you. And like, I didn't have anyone else. And he was Mm -hmm. so pissed at me and didn't want to go. But that's when they had the gates and you had to pull in and like all these people are like attacking the car and Mm -hmm. like the Catholic church had bought the house next door And they built a perch to look over the Mm. fence. And so people would stand on that perch and they're screaming, you know, calling me names. It was the like most bizarre thing. I was like, oh my God, how, like, this is ridiculous. And, you know, of course I'm bawling and it was like awful. 
so then you have to like get to the clinic and you you know have to ring the bell because it's security reasons that's when the doctor they had to bring him in the back door you know and bulletproof glass car um so anyway i get you know you get in there and then you have to go through the little counseling session and have your procedure and it was the same nurse who i saw at the other clinic was my nurse there um so that was she's really nice and i yeah i met her later on in life too and Mm. i i like she's a cool lady but anyway so that that's kind of how that all worked and it what's interesting about all this now looking back is that's what I always think about in all my work is like, what kind of community did I need during that time? Mm. Like it wasn't the young woman in this abusive relationship who felt like she had nowhere to turn. I like, I was turned off by religion already and that's a whole nother story, but you know, I wasn't going to go to a church that wasn't friendly Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have friends who I could tell because they were very judgmental. Um, I, you know, I, I just felt like I wasn't given good birth control options. Like the pill made me crazy. So I wasn't really compliant with it. Mm -hmm. Like it literally made me mentally not good. Mm. And so that's why I wasn't compliant and I was like, you know, they're just, so I, the whole, and, and then I get in this situation, I know what I'm going to do. And then all these people are like yelling at me and screaming and calling me names. I'm like, is this really like, this is a terrible community to be in. Like, this isn't what I want. Like, this isn't what I need. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's how I center all my work now. It's like, what's the kind of community that I needed? then and so those are the things I fight for like I want to have comprehensive sex education I want to be talking about what is a healthy relationship we should be talking to girls and boys about that starting young like what does that look like um I I want to be supportive and fund long-term birth control options for young girls um I want to, um, yeah, just have a place that we're compassionate for everyone and can look at things from their point of view. So that's, that's, uh, where I center most of my work now and then you know first of all I access should just be accessible and it's not at all anymore and so you know that's one of the reasons I volunteer for options fund is so women have a place that they can call to get money because I would have wanted that too Um, and I know that sharing my story, because I'm very open about it, has like I have I've had multiple friends who were my friends during that time message me, get a hold of me, and they're like, 
you know, your story changed me and I was the friend who wasn't there for you. Mm. And I'm, I, I feel awful about that. And they've totally changed their stance. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they grow up in a, in a way and, and that's how we all are in our life experiences challenge our biases and our beliefs and that's why i think it's so important to share stories and just be vulnerable totally because that's the only way we're going to create a community communities that are nurturing and vibrant and you talked about when you knock on doors now as part of your work mm -hmm. the topic does come up yeah, I'll share a specific story. It was this little town in southwest Wisconsin, and I'm knocking doors. And, you know, this lovely woman answered the door. She's making candles. And we were talking. And, you know, what I always say is, you know, who I am and why I'm there. And then what are the things that keep you up at night? Like, what are the things that that you really care about. That's what I, why I'm here. I want to hear about that. So of course that's what she said. She's like, well, I mostly support, you know, democratic values, but I'm right to life. And I just can't like, I don't, I don't know. I, I just can't budge on that. And I'm mm -hmm. like, I, I understand. And then I just tell, I, I just told her my story and I said, you know, I'm here and, and, that's what happened to me and having care and compassion for someone like, does that, does it, if, if um, is it truly compassionate if you deny, um, you know, something that you personally feel is wrong and just centering the centering the woman and I, I mean, we were both crying, you know, it, it just mm -hmm. creates this connection when you're vulnerable and you really connect because we've connected as women. Right. And like, no one goes out and gets pregnant so that they can have an abortion. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. We like it, it, it's, it's there because women need it. And I, I can't, I still can't imagine if I wouldn't have made that choice. I like, it, that was my decision and I'm totally comfortable with it. And that's what I needed when I was 19 years old in the situation I was in. And it's, you know, and I, I mean, she totally softened and um, I wasn't there to change her mind and she probably didn't change her mind, but at least it, um, it, it created an understanding. A, yes. And a human connection. Like, like this is like, these are people in our community. It's not just some person over there. So, so yeah, I, I, I just think we have to have those conversations and there's way more people out there who, you know, have been in the same situation I was than you'd ever know. So. My goal is to always find common ground when I can, but there's just going to be times when you can't. And and they might have a reason they feel the way they feel too. Mm -hmm. um, because again, it's care and compassion. And I, like, I truly feel that for everyone. Like the stuff I fight for, 
like will help everyone. I, I mean, I, even the people who don't agree with it, like I, they, they have a right to feel the way that they do too. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, but I, I do think you have to have the conversation and I've been in those places too. I mean, I've been in garages when I'm out on the doors and someone's working out in their garage. And I mean, that's another story, a guy that, I mean, there was just no common ground and that's, it's just part of it. And I, I just don't let them derail me. And, um, I just don't think that they'll ever get it. My great aunt, and I remember hearing, I was little, but hearing the stories about, so that would have been probably in the 60s. And she got pregnant when she was a teenager and they'd ship the women off to live somewhere else and they'd have the baby and then the baby would be put up for adoption and they were closed adoptions. And so, you know, my great aunt, it just bothered her her whole life and she couldn't ever find that baby and reconnect. um, And that bothered her. So Mm -hmm. I remember hearing that story growing up and, you know, I think, so that just wasn't even an, an option for me. I I just couldn't imagine doing that either. And I just, it just, so yeah, I grew up with that. And, but, you know, there's happy stories too. And I think that mm-hmm. that's great. And if that's what someone wants, then that's definitely what I want in our community. I mean, if that's, but I want to be, have all the supports in place for that young mother who might decide to give her baby up for adoption. I I want her to be supported as well. Um, but that just wasn't my decision. And I, so that's just how it is to me. You've really created this space of like access, community, vulnerability because of that connection of what you needed. Right. And, you know, fast forward to today. So this options fund, it's like, it's so ridiculous that we even need this. And so in Wisconsin, and and these are rather recent, I'm not sure the exact dates, but, you know, so we've implemented a 24 hour wait period. So basically a woman here, and it's different from Minnesota because a lot of the women here go to Minnesota and I'll explain why in a minute. But so there's a 24 hour wait period now in Wisconsin. So you have to go in person and get a consultation and then go back another day to have the procedure. So you can see on, in Western Wisconsin, our only clinics are in Madison and Milwaukee. So that means a woman would have to take a minimum of two days off work, probably more, plus figure out how to get there, have someone to take her, bring her back. So two trips. Mm-hmm. So in Minnesota, the consultation can be done over the phone. So a lot of women here go to the cities because they can do the consultation over the phone and just make one trip. That is um, an important point because yes. on the surface, it looks reasonable. Mm-hmm. It looks like why wouldn't that be a reasonable, conscientious thing to do? But it's mm-hmm. really thinking about the most vulnerable and access, what is right. equitable. 
And I mean, in Northern Wisconsin, we have women, you know, who have to travel hours and hours away, like the closest clinics 250 miles away or, you know, I mean, it's like, so we have these, it's just, it's not right. And, and this is for women 12 weeks and less, you know, if you have to get a um, later abortion, it's out of state, you have to travel out of state. And we also have the forced ultrasounds here. So that just means that the woman is forced to look at the ultrasound before the procedure. There's no reason to do that. Like I didn't have to do that. I also didn't have a 24 hour wait period. So these are the things that they do to keep making women jump through the hoops and there's no reason for it. And I, I can't emphasize enough how uh, early abortion is like such a simple procedure. Um, and it should just, we should just be doing them at the hospitals and outpatient, you know, then, I mean, it's just ridiculous that we have these clinics and then the protesters can show up and they know what, what days they're done on. And, you know, it's just the doctors are working in great danger because the, you know, in Nebraska in the nineties, that's when the abortion doctor, his Mm -hmm. farm got burned down in Omaha and all his horses got killed. Like that's when that happened. And the Wichita doctor killed. Yes. Yep. In church. Yep. And so, you know, it's just like all these little things keep getting whittled away and it makes it, it's like, this is not a compassionate and empathetic community for women. Like, that's really mean to make them, you know, and time is of essence. So you have to come up with the money. You have to figure out these travel plans. You have these waiting periods. You're forced to look at an ultrasound. And I can imagine the other side is that if they see the ultrasound, they will change their mind. That is their argument. But again, we're not centering the woman. I mean, you can refuse anything, right? When you go in and have a procedure done. I mean, they don't make you look at the x-rays of Mm. your broken arm or leg. They don't make you look at the, you know, biopsy of your lung. Like they don't force you to look at things. You have a right to refuse that. So why don't women? Designed to challenge Roe v. Wade, I then asked Anne if she believed that the laws being passed at the state level in places like Georgia, Mississippi, and Alabama, do they also have a collateral consequence of oppressing minorities and vulnerable populations more? There's definitely a connection. And, you know, all these laws, who they impact are poor people, um, people in poverty, and which statistically is a lot of... um, BIPOC people. And because rich women with means, families with means, the women can find access somewhere um, always. And, you know, that's just where I feel like there's this huge disconnect with so many things because the last time I had the phone for my volunteer um, time with Options Fund. You know, it was after the pandemic hit and people were losing their jobs 
And so a couple of the calls, it was like, I can't afford this. I can't afford a child because they'd lost their job. And so, you know, to flip all that, why, why are we, it's totally about oppression, especially if you're in poverty Mm -hmm. and why aren't we fighting for like fair wages and why aren't, I mean, if we truly care about women and babies and children, those are the things that we would be fighting for. Like access to quality health care and food and water and jobs. But instead, this focus becomes on putting in these ridiculous abortion bans that make stuff painful for women and it's just all about the patriarchy and power what's amazing Anne, is your courage is starting conversations that otherwise may not happen and using your pain in your life focusing that pain you have created a space of compassion for others to walk through Thank you. It it is the pain. I think pains yeah, that's what that's why most people act the way they do, no matter what it is. And it's how you use it. Yeah, I just I just don't want other women to have to deal with all that. Is there anything that you want to leave with me, with with others? So one of my favorite quotes is an Audre Lorde quote, which if you haven't read her stuff, add that to your list. Mm-hmm. But the master's tools can't dismantle the master's house. And I just think that what we need doesn't exist yet. And I think that we have to just reimagine the entire, just how we talk to people and how we organize and how to reconnect as humans. Mm. Uh, That's, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that we're never, we can't keep using these same systems and think that we're going to come up with something different. There's too many people that don't fit into mm-hmm. our systems that we have. And they keep getting purged out. Mm-hmm. And this this was just one example. And all those new laws that they keep putting in. It's to purge people out to protect the master's house. Next time on Anatomy of Change. On the edge of 18, Jen is struggling with mental illness and the discovery of a pregnancy. Is it too late? My body was weak. I felt like it just wasn't possible for me to carry the pregnancy to term and then recover from that um, in any kind of like psychological way um, or perhaps physical way. I really just shoved it in a box in the back of my head and locked it and never... Um, process any of it for a long time.
Anatomy of Change is executive produced by Tay Moeller, with post-production, editing, and mixing by James Fleegey. Special thanks to Anne, TM, and AT. The original series music, titled Reborn, was composed by Adrian Berenguer. Additional music featured in this episode by Rosa and Kyle Preston. Our website, where you can listen to all episodes, find the music and artists featured, and find companion content, is anatomyofchange.org. The end of the world at the palm of my hand When it all goes to hell, you still